Meditations with Zohar is sponsored by Cometeer, an exceptional new coffee company that blends the best of what is old with the best of what is new, using cutting-edge technology to preserve and deliver specialty coffee in its purest, most original form. Cometeer is the perfect metaphor for how tradition and modernity might elevate one another. Welcome to Meditations with Zohar, where I talk to today's most brilliant and thoughtful minds about philosophy, theology, art, and culture. Today, I'm joined by Sheila Hetty, a writer and novelist of tremendous pathos, depth, and wit. Sheila is the author of many books, most recently, How Should a Person Be, Motherhood, and the just-released Pure Color. You keep writing, and I guess the act of continuing to write suggests that you haven't finished what you set out to accomplish. Does the completion of one book create an agitation to create a new one? Is there something that you feel is missing that, that you'd only discover from the act of, of writing? Not exactly. It's more like I enjoy the activity in itself. And so I miss it when I'm not working on a book. It's not like there's something that I'm, some grand thing that I'm trying to get at that each book fails at, so I have to try again. I like the puzzle of making art. And, but usually when I'm done a book, I feel really depleted. And I, so I can't start right away. It's like I don't have anything inside me. And I find that a very frustrating period. Like that's where I am right now. Like everything from that period of time is kind of resolved inside me. And I need to collect more muck and dirt and anxiety and questions. And that takes time. That takes like a year or a year and a half or something to build up enough like inner tension to think like, okay, now I need to write a book to resolve that. Does it resolve something for you personally to work through these puzzles? Or is it more of just a, a pleasure? Like it's not so existential because your themes are very close to the bone of what it means to live a good life. That seems to, to be the recurrent question. And yet to describe it as a puzzle to be worked out analytically creates a sense of remove. How do you think about that? I don't think puzzles necessarily are always only worked out analytically. There's lots of ways you can work out a puzzle. You can work it out intuitively. You can work it out in lots of different ways. But I do think, yeah, somehow it resolves something personally for me to finish a book. Like I feel like I can go on to the next phase of life or the next, hopefully, higher set of problems. How much is writing specifically the thing that you need to be doing versus art more generally? And with, um, you know, one thing that I really admire about you is the experiments you take in blurring life and art. So like creating rituals and community events that have kind of the feeling of being art and yet they affect people in the flesh. So is, is interviewing someone also a work of art? What is an art for you? I don't think of the other stuff as, as art. I just think of it as they're not as difficult as writing a book. So it's not as deep an activity. So if I interview somebody, I'm not working through something over five years. It's, it's very different. Um, 
So I enjoy those things and I like to do them and I I have curiosities when I come into them and yeah, I want to put people in a space and have things happen, but it doesn't feel as rigorous um, or as important. I could give all that up and I'd still be okay. And if you had, um, like Charles Bernstein is a poet I really like, he he kind of jokes sometimes if if he could sing or make music, he'd do that. He wouldn't write poems. Do you feel particularly attached to the storytelling form or would you do other forms of art and find them equally compelling if you could? I don't know. I mean, if I had talent in other areas, I would probably find it other things compelling too, but I don't, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, maybe it's good to have to specialize. I mean, I always think that a nice way to spend the day would be to be painting rather than writing. I think it's nice because you're not staring at a screen, you're staring at a canvas, you know, you're standing up, you're not, well, in my case, lying in bed, you know, it just feels a little bit more physical, a little bit more active, a little bit more athletic. Um, I don't think it's as neurotic an activity as writing, but words are always in my head. So I can't actually imagine another art form. (sighs) I don't know. And I just love books. Like I think books are really important. I don't think I probably don't think paintings are as important as books and I don't think movies are important as books. And I just, I think books carry the human soul in a way that other art forms don't so purely for me. That's my belief, but I think that's my belief because those are the thing, the artworks that have affected me the most and where I can really feel the person. Like I can feel Dostoevsky and Crime and Punishment in a way that I can't feel, you know, de Kooning in one of his paintings, like I can feel them, but not as intimately. Do you prefer reading novels or stories to works of didactic philosophy or are they the same thing for you insofar as they're both words bound by a front and back cover? It depends on the philosopher. Like if it's somebody who has an aesthetic that is open and, um, somewhat novelistic, you know, then I then I can enjoy reading that as much as a novel. I, I don't think I read very many contemporary sort of philosophical academic writing doesn't really appeal to me so much. What I like about novels is that there's no citation. It's just like a world of the author's invention. And I think a lot of contemporary philosophy is citational and it's as much or more about other thinkers than it is about the world. So I think I prefer the thinkers who are directly about the world, you know, like reading Plato or something like that. I mean, I just like, I don't like other writers to get between the writer that I'm reading and myself. That very much resonates. Uh, I spent a lot of time in academia, but I now cut my teeth outside of academia. Um, Some of the reasons for wanting to be more in the world and with the people have to do with that citational issue that you mentioned of like, I don't want to spend 40 years of my life writing about Heidegger and the secondary literature. I'd want to just absorb these influences and make something of my own. And yet, if you do that in a dissertation form or a first or second book form, you're you're not going to be rewarded. You're going to be punished for that. So I'm wondering, maybe you don't have skin in the game of reforming academia, but how can we create a culture that promotes more risk-taking and originality as opposed to this 
calling rigorous just hiding behind uh, citation? I mean, I've never been part of the academy. I mean, I didn't even get a master's degree, you know, so I, I was sort of, I don't really know what the problems are that keep it that way or why everyone, why it is that way. I don't really understand. I, I would be curious what you think, because what do you think is the reason that that's so valued and that somebody can't come in with like a philosophical mind and just start anew? Yeah, I think there's so many issues at, at play, but one is just there's a comfort in being able to show your work. And there's a sense of accountability and a shared language that comes from footnotes. Whereas if a person just kind of brilliantly shows up, so what differentiates that person from the from the crackpot? Um, I think sort of charismatic leadership or creation in general is a problem in a kind of bureaucratic and perhaps democratic age because you can't really find the consensus mechanism for deciding why this this is brilliant and this isn't. We know there is such a thing as brilliance, but it can be so easily corrupted too. And I think there's a kind of safety, albeit a leveling down, when we reward people simply for publishing rather than you know, measuring, let's say, the existential impact of a paper on readers. Right. I guess your answer, I have so many th things I want to say, but what's wrong with the crackpot? I mean, you know, that's something you're like, how can you tell the, the brilliant one from the crackpot? Like, I think there is something interesting and, you know, Nietzsche was considered a crackpot. I mean, what's, why is the crackpot so threatening? No, that's a great point. Um, we would probably have to introduce more distinctions within crack pottery. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, for every Nietzsche, there's nine crackpots who didn't make it, um, whose, whose works are just madness and not mad and brilliant. And I, I do think that's a social problem and, and an ethical problem, but just vis-a-vis -vis the academy or institution building, you want people whose teachings can replicate in some way, maybe not in a cookie cutter cloning kind of way, but you want to go and, and learn something. And if you just have a person kind of spouting off inspiration, how does that, what's the theory of change underwriting that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't, it seems like there's almost no room for that. It's not even like there's, you can be half crackpot and half citational. It seems like there, you can't even, you know? I definitely want more crack pottery in the world, but I don't think I'm willing to say <laughs> that we should just give the keys to crackpots. I think maybe my personal solution is like for each person or institution to find a kind of moderate middle way or synthesis where they admit more weirdness, but there's still some boundaries on what's acceptable. You know, I think in the olden days, the way that you would know who's legit is you'd have an apprenticeship model. And so just a person who had no apprentices or no students was clearly not adding value. But now universities or, you know, closer to your home, maybe like MFA programs, they kind of mediate that personal relationship. And so you're going more for a credential than for the particular teacher. And so tradition isn't really being transmitted in the same way. It's more like the the brand of the institution. Mm -hmm. I think in MFA programs, tradition is being transmitted. Sort of the classic, well-written short story or novel or an idea of how to write, what's the right way, you know? 
And then often I think the other class and the teachers have an answer to that. So I do think tradition is being imparted there. Do you think, though, I mean, just the idea of an MFA program as a movement means that the tradition is the same, whether you go to one place or another, this teacher versus that teacher. Whereas I guess when I meant tradition, it was more about, let's say, going to a specific school because you wanted to learn with this particular teacher, as opposed to because you need the validation that um, an MFA confers on you. Right. Yeah, I think that's true. I think they're mostly, their values are deeply shared, like across the universities in America. I don't think it's radically different at one university than another. Yeah, what's being imparted or what the tradition is, what they want you to do, what they think a good story is. Maybe I'll step back for a second from this interesting rabbit hole and um, reflect on the fact that reflection is a big theme in your work, standing back. Pure Color begins so beautifully with a, a description of God as a kind of artist who steps back to look at what God has created and imagines our universe as a universe that takes place in that moment of God stepping back. And motherhood begins, I often beheld the world at a great distance. So I want to just riff with you a, a bit on the power of standing back, the power and the impotence of standing back, what do we gain and what do we lose from reflection? I mean, to me, it's sort of the opposite of being a worker and contributing and seeing oneself as sort of a, a mechanical object that's always meant to be producing and effective and moving forward. And so standing back is sort of the opposite of everything that you're asked to do and that you're rewarded for doing, right? That reminds me of the biblical idea of Shabbat, Sabbath, um, as a time of right. refraining from production. And um, it also harkens to a, a Kabbalistic Jewish idea of tzim, what's called simtsum, the idea that um, to create the world, God has to withdraw from God's self or from the world to make room for alterity, for something else. I'm wondering if... This idea of tzimtzum, of stepping back, something that you describe in your works, but and also that something that you practice as part of the creative process, is that a theory of modernity, of secularism, or do you think it's as old as the world? Are we living in the time of God's absence? I think it's just laziness. <laughs> Honestly, I think it's just, I really like doing nothing. I take a tremendous amount of pleasure in, you know, idleness. Um, I don't know if it's a theory of anything. I, I do feel like I'm teaching a class right now and I do, you know, I, this idea comes up a lot of like, I'm blocked. And that just to me suggests that they think they should always be writing, you know? You're not blocked, you're just not writing right now. I think the idea of the Sabbath is maybe completely gone from this from this world that we're, we all inhabit together. Like there's, if you're not do, if you're not working, if you're reflecting, if you're resting, you better get back to everything else really quickly. And I guess one does because the Sabbath only lasts one day, you know, one out of seven days. Um, but I don't know. I think that has God gone from the world? Personally, I don't experience God. I don't think. I have faith in certain things, but I don't know if I have faith in God. 
my my faith, which I think is not founded, which is I guess why it's a faith. It's not founded in evidence. Is that the that humanity keeps the good art around? That he did humanity keeps the best stuff around? And I, I I know that's probably not that's certainly not true. There's all sorts of social conditions that elevate certain things and neglect other things. But if I didn't have that faith, I don't think I could write books. I don't know if that's a version of God. Well, you said earlier you said a book is a kind of vessel for the soul. And I think I relate to what you're saying about art. I'd want to hear more about for you what the experience of art is or does. For me, it, it is a spiritual experience, having a sense of transcendence, a sense of being connected to the human condition throughout the ages. I think also just the power of human creativity is very profound. Um, like we're so small and yet here we are <laughs> devoting our time to doing this. That's amazing. For me, that's a kind of gateway drug to a more robust theology, but I, I don't think it's a good argument to convince someone that, that God exists and, and the rest of it. But what does it mean to not believe in God or not know if you do, but that, but still to have faith in art and still talk about art as a kind of transmission of, of soulfulness? I guess it just means that I've experienced, I can locate that experience of transcendence, as you put it, in relation to reading a book, let's say. But I don't know what experiences of transcendence I've had apart from art that I could say, oh, well, the cause was God. You know, like I can say that the cause was this book because I'm holding it in my hands, but I don't know where to locate the cause that would be God. I guess I could look at the peak moments of just experiencing the world that I've had in my life, walking down a street. I remember being in university, walking down the, the street, and there was nothing else to it. But I remember this this great feeling of being in space and time and in the universe. And, you know, maybe the cause of that was God, but I wouldn't know, I wouldn't think of why I would say that. I don't want to go too far down a rabbit hole, but I would just hold up as a something to think about in further reflection, that God needn't be a cause. That's a that's one way of, of thinking about God that we've been given from kind of Aristotle and medieval scholasticism. But you might think of God in more naturalistic terms as kind of energy, or you might think of God as, in almost mystical terms, as a, a force that accompanies you, that, that that's incarnate in you that's kind of guiding you in some sense or even just a generic providence that things exist for a reason maybe maybe not down to the detail but the world has a purpose of some kind even if that purpose is malleable or dynamic yeah i think i think i've had all those thoughts and feelings i think i just to me the that question and maybe that's not even a question that's important to you but the question of like what is God or is God so-called real is never something that's preoccupied me. Like, I don't feel like I need to have an answer to that in order to live. And I don't think that, I think it's just so beyond me. I think it's so, it's so unanswerable that it doesn't trouble me. You know, the things that trouble me are the things that seem like the answer is just there, like just beyond your fingertips. That makes sense. I mean, I think right, that's the kind of the pragmatic response is 
to metaphysics in general is like, I want to know the cash value of this idea. I'm, I'm trying to live here. I'm not, I'm not trying to speculate. Um, and yet it seems like from childhood onwards, so much of how we live is based upon unconscious speculations about purpose. Do you, do you think we can get around that? That sense of the speculative guiding us. I don't know the answer to that question, but I guess like thinking about God, like I can both believe in this idea and not believe in it. And it feels fine. Like there doesn't feel like a paradox or a contradiction in believing or not believing. So like, I do feel like I have a purpose and I do feel that life itself has a kind of beauty in its patterns and um, paths and I can simultaneously feel that that has something to do with God and feel like it doesn't have something to do with God. It just has to do with my perception. And they're somehow compatible and rest easily beside each other. I don't know why that is. It seems strange. Let's let God be a kind of stand-in word for something we don't understand, but that also signifies something beyond us. How much weight do you give to that which is beyond Sheila Hetty's thoughts? versus Sheila Hetty's thoughts. And and just to sort of say that a little bit more sharply, like since Luther, it seems like the West kind of took a turn towards interiority in a hard way. We we went from outsourcing moral questions to popes and leaders to basically validating the conscience as the source of authority. I see Luther really as the modern founder of individualism, even though he was religious. He kind of gave us the secular age. Where on that spectrum between Protestantism and Catholicism would you place yourself? And I don't mean in terms of theology, but in terms of the confidence that you grant to your own heart or intuition versus some sense of what the outside world is giving to you. I like the play between um, feeling like there are rules in the outside world and a kind of collective ideas about how you're supposed to live and what's good and what you're supposed to do and my own desires and inclinations that may be amoral or selfish. I enjoy the and don't enjoy that question of like, well, which are you supposed to which is the authority, you know? I think that's, I think that I don't have an answer to that. And I think it's kind of fun not to know, you know, and to, and that you'll, you'll die and you'll never have heard the verdict on that. You'll never have known whether you lived right. I mean, I assume you'll never know whether you've lived right, you know? Um, You die and then there's no, there's, there's no one telling you whether you did it right. And yet you're still so concerned with doing it right. Um, but whatever that means, even if, yeah, even if you'll never know whether you did, I find that kind of interesting. And I don't know if that answers your, like on the, on the spectrum between Catholicism and Protestantism question, but I don't know. I think it does. I think what you're saying is that it's a push and pull and that to be a self is to be unsettled by that, by that question rather than to land on one side of it. Yeah. I wonder how much of that is connected to being a writer specifically versus a more general stance that people share. 
Like I just, I, I, and of course every writer is different, but your writing in particular seems very much to be about the tension between individualism and collaboration. It's almost a chicken or egg issue. I'm very bad at making decisions and I always have been. And I, I spend, I was, when I was a child, like um, 12 or something, my dad gave me this book called The Dice Man by, it's written by Luke Reinhardt. Though that's not the name of the writer. That's the name of the character in the book. And the character in the book is this psychiatrist who, I guess he's middle-aged in his 30s, whatever that meant in the 70s or whenever the book was written. He's bored with his life. He's bored with his marriage and everything. And he decides to um, sort of live by chance. And he has this dice. And he, anytime he has to make a decision, he writes down six possibilities and he rolls the dice and then he does them. And of course, he descends into absolute immorality, you know. Um, <clears throat> but I, I think I make about a dozen decisions a day by... I have this app on my phone that's basically, it's basically a coin flipping app, but the screen either turns red, the screen either turns red or blue. I, I take blue to mean yes and red to mean no. And I just can't, I can't bear having to make all the stupid decisions one has to make in a day. I've ended up living in this way that <laughs> reminds me of that book. And it's not so dramatic, obviously. It's not a novel that I'm living but um, that's another authority. That's not society or my own consciousness, but just chance and randomness. And I, I like that. Do you find editorial decisions to be as grueling as life decisions? No, that's very clear to me. That's like a very, very strong instinct. I think that's why I enjoy it. I feel like the authority, but I am the authority <laughs> when it comes to my book and you can't hurt anybody or, you know, I don't think I can, you can really, you can't really hurt anybody by writing the book the way you want to write it. I mean, maybe you can hurt your mother because you talk badly about your mother, but like with it, but really, I mean, you can't, it's not like life things where you, you're less likely to hurt somebody by following your instincts in how you write your book than how you live your life. Do you think indecisiveness in your case is something that's genetic or cultural or do you think it's um a kind of psychoanalytic complex that de developed in response to some set of experiences i have no idea but i think it is in relation to this idea of fate and this sort of belief in fate but this but i don't know how to follow it i don't know what the right decision is any moment so i would rather yeah everything feels sort of heavy um and so in order to sort of counteract the heaviness of every decision, leaving it up to chance feels like the best solution I have found. Meditations with Zohar is sponsored by Kamatir, my favorite coffee, not just for its exceptional taste, but for its unique aesthetic. Kamatir comes straight to your door as ice cubes, which you can then melt in hot water and have immediately as a hot cup of coffee. It tastes even fresher than if a cup were made for you at your local coffee shop. I highly recommend getting a box. Use the link cometeer.com slash Zohar to get $20 off your first order. If I remember correctly, it's been a while. You were you acted in your friend Margot's film, uh, Teenager Hamlet? Yeah. So that I, I watched that over a decade ago, and I, I really was moved by that. Um, <laughs> And uh, just for the listeners, it's a kind of documentary that tells the story of Hamlet 
by asking people to tell their life story in short interviews um, through the lens of, are you Hamlet or are you Ophelia? And I think of those two archetypes, and maybe this is spelled out in the film, but I'll just give it my gloss, of Hamlet as a person who's racked by interiority, a person who's overcome by thought to the point of indecision and driven mad by, 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 by being neurotic. I think of Ophelia as somebody who is driven mad in the exact opposite direction. Uh, what I guess psychologists or psychiatrists might call psychosis, which is instead of being wrapped up in your own thoughts, you're kind of so eager to act that you just take every moment is a kind of, is saturated with meaning and giving you guidance on what to do, but it doesn't have any emergency brake. So kind of Hamlet's trying to drive a car by with his foot on the on the brake, and Ophelia's just hitting the gas. <laughs> and I, I have actually spent many years sort of mapping myself and mapping people through that framework of like, are they more of a Hamlet or an Ophelia? Are they more neurotic or psychotic? It's kind of like choose your symptom. Um, probably drawn to you because I think I, I'm more on the neurotic side of things. Um, <laughs> but in the, in the play Hamlet, one of the ways that he thinks he's going to solve his indecision is by putting on a play within a play and somehow gauging the reaction of people to his art is going to got, is going to give him the courage, the clarity he needs to decide whether he's going to avenge his father's death. So I'm just wondering, maybe this is like overreading, but do you relate to your work as a kind of mousetrap in the way that Hamlet did? Is there something that you can discover either from the act of writing or from the way that people relate to the work that will give you something, a way to overcome that indecision that, that, that bothers Hamlet so much? No, I don't think so. But I do think that I had this revelation like about a week ago. I realized that how should a person be and motherhood and even Tickner, my book before, how should a person be and pure color all were written in some sense to improve my relationships to specific people in my life. And so there may be a relationship that I'm trying to have to the reader, but that reader is a very specific person. Like, my dead father who can't read the book or my mother or Margot or, you know, and so all the other readers sort of become incidental and it's not their reading of the book that will give me an answer. But I think my demonstration of love for them by writing this book that is meant to sort of repair a relationship that will repair our relationship in a way or give them the feeling of being loved. That's beautiful. And then realizing that made me immediately never want to do that again. Why not? I don't think it's fun. Like, I don't think that's, I think that's very, I would like to try to write a book that is just in relation to myself, you know, that isn't so desperate. You know, I think there's something very beautiful about, about that, that impulse that led me to write all those books. But I also think when you recognize something like that, you can never do it again. So I all, like, I didn't recognize that for 20 years. And then once you recognize it, you recognize it because it's, it's in the past. So I, I, I think that the reason that I saw it was because I would never do it again anyway. 
I think there's a paradox in, in the idea of writing for yourself seeming to be amoral or self-indulgent, but actually being a bigger gift to a reader than writing for a reader. Why do you think it's a bigger gift? I think that when you write for someone else, you're performing, you're being performative. But when you write for yourself, you're being sincere. Of course, you're performing for yourself and you're also aware that this thing will become a performance. But I think you get to something more heartfelt and maybe I'm projecting here. But I think that when you do things for others, you're also trying to protect them from something. And that can get in the way of just sort of telling the brutal truth. But I think people actually appreciate the truth more, especially in the form of a novel or a poem, you know, tell the truth, but tell, tell it slant. If there's some kind of disguise, it allows people to hear it in a way that <laughs> saying it straight up to their face might not, mm -hmm. might not get in. Yeah, I'm curious to find out. I mean, I'm really... I wonder what that activity will feel like, if it'll feel very different or not. Changing gears for a second, do you feel like in How Should a Person Be, the, one of the characters is named Israel. Um, you have a very <laughs> complex, ambivalent, difficult relationship with Israel. Obviously, that's an aesthetic choice to name a character Israel. Um, how important is kind of Jewishness to you in either your life generally or in your artistic life? Like, do you feel, especially as an artist, connected to a, a lineage of Jewish writers? And what do you what do you say to the idea of like the sort of the trope of the Jew as the consummate outsider whose, you know, alienation imposed upon her from society is the very thing that then allows the, that person to be in the position of storyteller or truth teller. I think that sounds a little romantic to me. I've never experienced being an outsider and I think I would be reluctant to say that that's my subject position, so to speak, that I'm the outsider and that I'm an outsider because I'm Jewish is also something I really don't think I've experienced, honestly. I mean, my mother... Yes, my grandmother, yes, but not me. And so I think that stuff can be conveyed and can be in you. But I think my lived experience as an acceptable member of society is bigger, I think, than that. I seem to have a lot of friends who are Jewish, not by design. Maybe there's, but I think by accident. I won't even realize that they're Jewish. I think there's maybe some sensibility that... I resonate with, and I, it's hard to say what that sensibility is, but I'm not part of a Jewish community, you know, and I don't, I don't think about it in a political way. I don't know. It's, it's definitely like an underdeveloped area of thought for me. I don't, I don't, it's not an area of concern for me, you know? Hannah Rent said something about being Jewish, that it was like simply a fact about her, but not something that she related to in terms of an identity, but that because the world saw her as Jewish, she had no choice but to respond to the world as a Jew. But um, perhaps in an age of tolerance where the world doesn't put that on us so explicitly, it can be more of more chill. Yeah. If you're looking out for anti-Semitism, you find it, but I don't think I go around looking out for it. Obviously it's there in the world, but 
I don't, there's just so many other groups that are much more the subject of contemporary um, prejudice than Jews in my experience. Sure. Thank you for sharing that. I wasn't sure um, what you would say, but I, I feel deeply connected to Jewish history and lineage and tradition, and I, for, I, I hope it won't bother you, but I related to how should a person be, especially just be simply through the powerful metaphor of Israel as a kind of violent, <laughs> but loving, but violent partner. Yeah, that's sort of what I meant by it. And it's a place that you you think is going to be one thing and it turns out to be something else. You you think it's good, you know, mm. um, it turns out to be the opposite of what you'd hoped it, it would be. So we're living in a time that I experienced to be kind of more moralistic than previous times. Again, I wasn't really around, but um, even just comparing like my childhood in the 90s to the Zoomer generation, it seems like people are much more concerned with um, the boundaries of transgression uh, in speech and in art. And um, as somebody who believes in this collaboration, but also is very much committed to art as a kind of amoral endeavor, um, if at least at the aesthetic level, if you're going to achieve something, you can't be too concerned with morality um, or or just parroting the morals of the times. How do you how do you think of this moral climate as it relates to you? Is it are you indifferent to it, or have have you found that it's changed the way that you relate either to the editorial process or to the process of publicly representing your work? I mean, I think on one level it's been positive for me because I can. I don't think it would have occurred to me before this period in history, which I guess is sort of like the dawn of social media. Um, I don't think it would have occurred to me to try to look at what I've written from other points of view and see, well, does this still hold up? Does this still stand? And so I think that that's really positive. Um, it's not, it it would make it stronger, I think, to respond to that. I mean, the same way with like, how should a person be? I showed Margot multiple drafts of the book because I wanted it to stand up in her perception um, of it. And so to me, it's like the same thing, but it goes beyond anybody I might interact with in daily life. I can imagine, <clears throat> okay, what would this person think of this? What would this person who's coming from this position in the world think of this? Um, and I wanted it to, I want it to be relevant to more than just somebody who's like me. So I think it makes the work stronger. Because you kind of, you've, the field research is being done for you already every day on Twitter. Well, I, you know, I had this line in pure color, like, uh, you know, I just said, like a fat older brother sitting on your face, you know, that's how hot the world seemed. And then I was like, well, do I really want to use, does it, the brother have to be fat? You know, I'm thinking about reading the book as somebody who's overweight and is like, makes that line makes them feel bad. But, you know, I'm just like, well, maybe I can just say like a bad older brother, like it's got the same rhythm. It's got this, you know, I mean, I just think about it from how would other people reading the book feel? And I want, I don't want the I don't want that line to make somebody feel bad. I don't think it makes it better art if it if it makes somebody in an inadvertently feel bad. I want everyone, I want as many people as possible to find a home in the book, you know, and not to feel alienated, not to feel they're being kicked, you know, and I don't mean to kick somebody. I don't think that makes the art worse. I think it, yeah, I think it makes it stronger. So I, I totally get avoiding sort of unnecessary injury, especially when the injury isn't the point. Yeah. But what about 
may, I don't know if you've experienced this, but what about when something that's authentic to you as a, as an artist will cause injury and you don't feel that it's an incidental. Then I'd leave it in. Then I would leave it in. I mean, my whole book motherhood was, could cause injury. You know, there's only so much you can do. I mean, I'm still writing about like a heterosexual coupling. And I mean, I wanted the character to have very old fashioned ideas about what was acceptable, what was an acceptable life as a woman to live, you know? Um, And I think some people might just find the book completely outdated in certain ways or completely irrelevant to them and offensive, even in its, the irrelevance of that question to them. But I mean, that's just, you know, don't read the book in that case. If the whole thing is is objectionable, I mean, you can read it and object or don't read it. I can't, ch- I, you can't, you have to make something. So I, I, that makes a lot of sense to me and that, that seems very fair and reasonable. Um, what, about, what do you think about kind of the issue of an artist living an immoral life, quote unquote? Um, does, sh- how much should that affect the way that we receive the work and does it matter whether the artist is alive or not? It's never mattered to me. I mean, I've always assumed that artists live immoral life lives and are not are are not good people. I just assume that <laughs> if you're spending your life so you know in this way, where the the most important thing to you is to make this painting great or whatever or this movie great, you might not be such a good person. You know, I mean, there's degrees. Um, I don't know. I just never, I never expected that. I never, I never thought about that this was something that, that would matter to me. Um, but again, that, you know, like you, I was raised in a certain time and, and it was like the opposite, you know, the worse the artist was, that was proof of their art is proof of their greatness. You know, that's also kind of a, a, a sick position, um, and, and strange and, you know, obviously created to <laughs> to let these people do whatever they wanted. Um, but, you know, I have to say, actually, to be honest, I, I was reading the biography of Leonard Cohen and, to, and, and I'd always loved Leonard Cohen. And I stopped reading it because I didn't like the man that I was reading about. And I thought, this is ruining his music for me. So I, I am susceptible to that. I just, I didn't like the way that he treated um, the mother of his child. And I just, I just, but so I just stopped reading it, you know? His music is less... It's less of a pleasure to me now, actually. And it's not because I believe that artists should be good people. It just ruined it for ruined him for me a little bit. Maybe it depends on why we're what we're seeking to get from art. Like I think if what you're trying to get is wisdom or some kind of moral guidance or some kind of epiphany about what virtue is, then it helps it helps if the author is also good but I don't think it disqualifies if they're not. I think if you're reading for craft or a kind of impersonal truth, then it really doesn't matter so much. Like in mathematics, uh, it, the, the mathematical truths are true whether discovered by a Nazi or not. But I think for a novel, it has a point of view. Like it's it's telling you things about what's true and false, what's good and bad, and if you if the author is somebody that you wouldn't trust to babysit your children, so to speak, uh, it's not to say you should throw the book away, but I would personally be a little bit more on guard. Should I not? Or are those, are those distinctions just idiosyncratic? And, and as a teacher of, of this stuff, like 
how would you frame these issues for the next generation? Well, okay, the first part of what you said, I think it depends on where you think the art comes from. Like some people think that art, the artist just channels some cosmic thing and that the art is not a reflection of their personality or their wisdom or their morals, you know, that so in that case, who the person is, is not relevant. But if you think that art is like the purest expression of that creator's self, then it would throw it into question. So it depends where you think art comes from, how it comes through a person or what parts of a person it comes from. Does that mean that you think it generally comes from this sort of higher place that the artist is channeling and then therefore their subject position is less essential? I don't really think that. I think there's some of that. I think it's both. I think it's that and it's like a distillation of the person. It's like the essence of the person. I think it's probably both. But it's important for me to be moral, like in the creation of my books, like no animals were harmed in the making of this movie. Like that's important to me. Like when I was writing, how should a person be? I was like, that was one of the most important things to me. It was like, I don't want to lose any friends while I'm writing this book about my friends. It just seemed like such an easy thing to do is to lose friends because you're writing about them. So I wanted to figure out how to write a book in a way that felt moral to me. You know, I thought, okay, the book's going to be a failure if Margot stops being my friend as a result of it. It's going to be like an aesthetic failure, even though that's not in the realm of aesthetics. So this is kind of a weird question, but um, how many people should be artists full time? I guess I'm not looking for a quantitative answer, but like how many people do you think have the soul of that resembles your own who aren't who aren't making art full time that ought to be? Is it a lot? Probably. (laughs) I think it's very natural. I think it's a very natural way for many people to encounter life, you know, to to want to like transform it into something transform it into a book or transform it into a painting. That seems pretty natural to me. It's how we all start off. And then people just get that sort of like taken away from them by parents and the education system and the world and its demands. If you could pull one lever um, to kind of change the world with just that pull, would you pull the lever that that helps the the great artists who are currently not making great art kind of produce masterpieces or would you pull the lever that takes people who basically have no artistic practice to just take up a little bit of artistic creation as a kind of hobby but you know maybe just a little bit more in their life not no masterpiece will come from it I guess the first because in the case of the second yes that would give a lot of people pleasure but I think the masterpieces would give even would give people pleasure for generations and generations to come. And also those people that might take up a hobby and and get some pleasure from painting now and then could equally get pleasure from other things. So I don't need to pull a lever. Like maybe, you know, they could get pleasure from talking, having an interesting conversation with a friend. I mean, having a, you know, having a walk in nature. Art's not the only source of pleasure. When you experience other people's art how much of the time do you spend relating to it as a critic um, who knows how the meat is made versus as just as a simple enjoyer and appreciator and do you do I don't know how they 
meat is made. Because everyone makes it differently. It always feels like a mystery. Like I'm reading a friend's book right now, and even though she's a friend, I have no idea how she wrote it, what her process was. I assume it would have been very different from mine. So it, it remains like a completely mysterious thing to me. But why don't you read like a paragraph or sentence that's well-formed? Do you, do you read through it and, and get to the next well-formed sentence? Or do you, do you ask yourself while you're reading it, how did, what makes the sentence good? Like sort of how analytic? No. Okay. I never have those thoughts. I never think about how other people mechanically, I don't think about craft in that way because, I mean, maybe I should, like, I think some people do read novels and they think, okay, how did they tell this story? And they go back and they see where this character was brought in and where this turn happened. And they look at it very analytically, but I've never, I've never done that with a book because I assume that I, there's nothing for me to learn from doing that. I don't think that, cause I don't think I would be able to then go and implement that in my own work. I think Art comes from a more mysterious place. It doesn't come from copying what worked for someone else. I mean, this is a very, this is like the, an idea. This is a modernist idea, you know? I mean, I think the idea that you can't learn from the masters. I should probably start learning from the masters right about now. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, share your thoughts with me. Thanks for having me be on your podcast. It's so, it's, it's so exciting and such an honor, honestly. I don't say that lightly. Anyways, I always enjoy our conversations, and uh, I hope there's more of them. Me as well. And um, congratulations on Pure Color becoming a thing in the world. I'm Thank you. really enjoying it. Thanks. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAtkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.